Okay. Um, well, hello, everybody. Welcome to Bethel Brandon. If you're new with us today, uh, thank you for coming. Uh, we are ex really excited that you are here. Uh, so, Pastor Bryce took, like, all of my jokes already, so I don't really have, like, a good intro anymore um, because I was going to make a joke how Pastor Mike is cooler than me because he's not here, and then, you know, we're not going to tell him, but he's probably watching online, and I'm a mess because I'm throwing my notes everywhere. So, um, no. So, uh, I'm actually really, really excited to be here. Um, truth be told, I don't get to do a lot of preaching and stuff like that, just with the nature of my role is making sure that everything works behind the scenes, which I absolutely love. So, the chance that I do get to speak, I take a great honor and responsibility in that. But something happened with this sermon preparation that was so different than every other time that I have, you know, preached a sermon. This time, normally God is like, Logan, you are going to talk about this. And I'm like, great. And then I can go and do all my research and read the Bible and come to a conclusion and then I can share it. This time was not like that at all. Have you ever been in that moment where you have like six million things swirling around your head all at once and you almost become numb because you don't know what to start with? Right? Like I've been there, right? Where you have so many things going on, you just, you get overwhelmed. Well, that was me. I had so many ideas going through my mind. So it was like Tuesday, I believe, and I'm in the office and I'm sitting at my computer, blank Word document in front of me, just staring into the abyss thinking, what am I going to speak on? And so I was get, I'll be honest, I was getting a little crabby, right? I'm a little stressed, you know, right? You only have so many days to prepare a sermon, to do everything else. And Pastor Stephen comes into my office, and he's like, hey, Logan, but he's, you know, he and I, he busts my chops all the time. He's one of my good friends. We do that all the time. And he's just, he's just getting after me a little bit. And I kind of snapped at him, not like a mean way, but I was like, what do you want? Like, I was like, I am busy, and then he's like, boy, you don't talk to me like that. <laughs> we all know Pastor Steven, so I mean, that's like... And so I, I said, I, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm stressed, I don't know what to talk about. And he's like, well... He's like, well, then I guess you're doing nothing right now, so I can put you to work then. <laughs> so then we went upstairs, and we sorted a bunch of games for our fall carnival. And then through that, I guess turning my brain off, right, and just doing, working with my hands, just like setting stuff up. Um, I got back, and I sat at my computer, and I was like, okay, time to write. And then I just, I just started writing ideas, and then for some reason, I, like, one of them just stood out. It was this idea of, like, the question stood out to me, are we good neighbors? I mean, and so that's, are we good neighbors? I just want us to think about that through the rest of this message. Because I don't think there's a yes or no answer because we're human and we make mistakes and we have good days and bad days. So some days we're good and some days we're not. But the reason I ask the question is when I look at our world today, we are very divided. You are on team blue. You are right here. But if you're on team green and you're over here, you can't be on Team Blue. We are bitter enemies. I don't like them. They don't agree with me. Whatever. For some reason, we have it in our heads that if one person chooses one thing, that immediately makes them opposite of us. Right? In terms of, like, you know, growing up, if you liked Marvel, right? I love Marvel comic movies. 
and everything like that. But if, oh no, if you like DC, you're crazy. Right? Like, no, you just like something different. Today, we have such a real challenge with loving people as ourselves. We have a really hard time loving people when it's not convenient for us. So, back to the question of are we good neighbors? I think the real question is, are we good neighbors only when it's convenient for us? Do we love and help people when it's easy for us, or are we willing to do it when it's more of a challenge for us? See, God's clear in his command to love others as ourselves, to love everybody. And we actually see this in Luke chapter 10, verse 27. And this is Luke chapter 10, is where we're going to be spending most of our time today. And it says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Another question. Why does it seem we are really good at loving God, but not good at loving each other? And for some of us here, yes, we we might struggle with our relationship with God. I know I have. But the fact still remains... God doesn't talk back. He doesn't sass us back. You know what I mean? He doesn't hold our opinions against us. He doesn't throw our mistakes back in our face. God loves us, and he doesn't judge us. He doesn't do those things that we humans do to each other. So, of course, it's easier for us to love God, but it's way harder for us to love others. And again, it goes back to this divided world we live in. And one of the best ways that I think I can illustrate that is talking about uh, my years in high school. So I went to high school here in Brandon. Uh, I went to Vincent Massey. Um, we, we, you get, we, can, we can ridicule and mock me later about it, but um, I went there, and part of the culture that seemed to be there at Vincent Massey, and I hope it's changed, was that the other high schools and other students were beneath us because they went to the other school, right? Oh, they live on that side of town? Ugh, better stay away from them. Or it was like, oh, they, they, they're really into musical theater? Probably a nerd. Don't talk to them. Now, I love musical theater, and I took drama from grade 9 to 12, but it's still that idea that we were somehow inherently better than them. And I'm not just talking in sports, right? Because in sports, you have competition. But competition actually means you have a healthy and mutual respect for the other team. That's what competition is. No, no, no. This is direct opposition. It means that they are oppo- we are opposing them because they are different. Now, when I look back on this, I think, Logan, you were really young, dumb, and naive. How could you think that that was right? And obviously... I don't. I look back on that and I'm like, wow, that was a really silly thing to do. But I can reconcile that. I can look back and I can say, yeah, that was really silly. I probably shouldn't have done that. And let's be real. The only reason I went to visit Massey because it was like two blocks from my house. I could walk there every day without a problem. My, almost all of my best friends went there. My two older brothers went there. So it was just like the most easy, logical decision to make. And I'm betting that 99% of the other students that made the choice to go to their high school probably went through the exact same logical pathway that I did. 
So why did I judge them? Why did I not love them? Why did I not love across the aisle? But the problem is, I look at our world today, and I see that on a way bigger scale. Right? You can't love somebody who isn't on the same team as you. And it is hard, absolutely. It's way easier to love people who share the same values as you. Right? I'm a Minnesota Vikings fan. Again, you can ridicule and mock me later. But I understand that I'm probably going to get along with other Minnesota Vikings fans because we share that in common. Now, a Green Bay Packers fan, on the other hand, that's a different story. We're probably not going to get along. All because we just choose to like a football team? Right, especially as a Canadian where I don't actually have any real skin in the game as to what team I cheer for. Right? Like, it's not like I'm from Minnesota or I'm from Green Bay or whatever. I just chose them because they're closest and I really like the purple people eaters in the 90s. So it was like it just made, it just made, it just made sense. Right? But we put up so many of these artificial like, barriers and things in the way that make these people different than us, that make others opposite. Why? How come we can love people who voted the same as us, but we sure as heck don't love people who voted opposite of us? Right? It's, it's way easier for us to love people who share the same political view as us, but what if they don't? How do we react? How do we love them? Because we're supposed to. God's commanded us to do it. The reason we don't love it is because it's not convenient. It isn't easy for us, so we don't do it. it it's really as simple as that in my, in my mind. We don't love people because it's not convenient for us, and they're going to talk back, and they're going to have another opinion, and we might not know how to defend it, or we might not want to have that awkward conversation, that crucial conversation. So, this leads us into our story. Like I said, we're still in Luke chapter 10, um, but we're going to read the story of the Good Samaritan. Now, some of you are probably thinking, oh man, my hundredth sermon on the Good Samaritan, here we go. I hope you don't think that, because I hope God has really given me something new and unique to talk about here. Um, but if not, I just, I'll pretend I don't see you sleeping. Um, <laughs> So we're in Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. You can, I'm just going to read it. You can follow along on the screens. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Now pause. When it says expert in the law, it doesn't mean a lawyer, so to speak. It means more like a law professor. Somebody who studies the law and teaches it, not somebody who practices it. So from now on, I'm just going to say scribe. Okay, because that's what he was. He was a scribe. He studied and, and, and learned about law. So the scribe stands up and, and is about to challenge Jesus, but he does it respectfully because he says, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, Jesus replies to him with two questions. He says, What is written in the law? How do you read it? Well, he answered with the verse I read earlier. You love your Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul, excuse me, with all your mind and with all your strength. And you love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, you've done, you've answered correctly. Good job. Gold star. 
Do this and you will live. But the scribe wasn't done there. He wanted to justify himself. He wanted to try to test Jesus some more. So he thinks he's really clever and he asks him, probably a little, you know, sarcastically and snotty. He's like, well, who's my neighbor then? Trying to trap him. Well, Jesus replies with the story of the Good Samaritan. So, a man was walking down a road from Jerusalem to Jericho. Then, robbers jumped out, they attacked him, they stripped him of all his clothes, took all of his possessions, they beat him half to death, and left him dying on the side of the road. Soon, a priest coming down from Jerusalem sees this, this dying man on the side of the road, and instead of, you know, going over and helping him, he moves to the other side of the road, completely ignores him and keeps going. A little bit later, a Levite coming down from Jerusalem sees the dying man on the road, does the exact same thing as the priest, moves to the exact other side of the road and completely forgets that this man is there. But soon a Samaritan had, was coming down. And as he saw this wounded traveler... He went to him, he took pity and had mercy on him. He covered his wounds, he bandaged all of his scars, he cleaned them with oil and wine. He even threw this dying man on his own donkey and took him to the nearest inn, where he cared for him. The next day, he goes down to the innkeeper and he gives him two denarii. Now pause. Denarii is a full day's wage. So it's your, ten, it's your eight to ten hours worth of money for that day. So he's giving him 16 hours worth of his paycheck, essentially. So, so you know, for staying in the inn and, and just keeping this guy safe. Then he tells the innkeeper, please look after him. And when I return, I will reimburse any extra cost this man may incur. Jesus finishes the story and he talks to the scribe and he asks him, which of these three was the neighbor to the man who was dying? Well, the scribe replied, the man who had mercy on him. Jesus tells him, go and do likewise. See, every time I read this story, whether it be prepping for this sermon or learning about it in Bible college or just reading it when I'm reading my Bible, I learned something new. Because to fully understand this um, message, we have to unpack all of the historical context, okay? So when you go to Bible college, they teach you a lot about context. It's this big fancy word that basically tells you to look at everything surrounding one specific topic. So in this case, I like to start with the setting. I like to, in my mind, I'm a very image-driven person, so I want to put myself in the scenery. I want to know how it looks. So this road they're traveling on from Jerusalem to Jericho is about 17 to 18 miles long, and it was this curved path through caves and jagged rocks and cliffs, and it was in this desert. Okay, it was already a super terrible and perilous and sketchy journey to begin with. Then you add 
all of these secret little spots where robbers and things like that had the perfect spots to ambush you. So this road, this journey was extremely difficult. And these robbers were smart. Okay? Because now we look at the destinations. Why this road? Why are they here? Why are they going from Jerusalem to Jericho? What is that significance? Because Jesus makes it clear that he names two cities. See, in early Judaism, they are very cyclical. They, they work in a cycle. And three times a year, all Israelites had to make the trek to Jerusalem to give their offerings in the temple. So these robbers, being really, really smart, knew, oh, it's coming up on the three, you know, it's coming up on, for them to go and make the trek. So they would lie and wait for these people. So that leads us then to answer, well, who is this man? The, man? the man was a Jew, because he tells us very clearly that he was coming down from Jerusalem. So he was most likely had just finished giving, giving his offerings in the temple, finished doing his religious rites and ceremonies, he was on his way home. So truthfully, he probably didn't have much on him anyway for the robbers to make like a big profit or anything. So... It's kind of like a meaningless crime. But that's not the point of the story. So they finish giving their offerings and their worship, all that stuff. Now, Jesus is clear. So we understand the setting and what happened. Now we have to look at the three other characters Jesus mentions. And this is where the story gets extra spicy. See... He names a Samaritan, a priest, and a Levite. It's almost like the start of a really bad joke. <laughs> so at this time in history, if you've read the Old Testament, then you probably have a better understanding of the history between the, the people of Samaria and the Israelites. But for those that don't, they absolutely, unequivocally hated each other to the bone. They were absolute bitter rivals. They hated everything about each other's culture. Like, to the point that, like, they had generation-long wars and would fight constantly. You know, Samaria, the Samaritans would desecrate the Jewish temple. And then the, the Israelites would strike back. And it was just this constant back and forth of battling between these two cultures. And the Israelites really did not like the Samaritans because they thought their beliefs were pagan, were not true. They were worshiping a false god, all these things. So this hatred between these two groups of people runs super deep. Honestly, if you were caught with being, like if you were caught fraternizing with the enemy, so to speak, you risked being kicked out of your family Maybe even being punished, you were ostracized and accosted from your family, from your, from your culture. That's how bad it was. So for this Samaritan man to go out of his way to help his enemy is hugely impactful and important because it's exactly counter-cultural to what should have happened. This man showed inconvenient love. Goes out of his way to help somebody who is completely opposite of him. All cultural standards 
give him the right to walk away and pretend like he didn't see anything. But he doesn't. Next, we have a priest. Priests at the time, in the Jewish tradition, were the highest religious authority you could be. They were the bosses of the bosses. They were the embodiment and the ambassadors of Yahweh, of the Jewish God. So they were, like, they were the ambassadors. So they were the ones that God would speak to and that they would relate to the people. They were the ones that got to, you know, practice all the religious rites and, and, and do all that stuff. They studied for their whole life to do this. They were experts in the law, in religious traditions, everything. They're, they're the big boss. They were actually supposed to be the embodiment of what a true Israelite was supposed to live. They were to model a righteous life. Next, we have the Levites. Now, again, if you've read the Old Testament or you've been around the church for a little while, you've probably heard about the Levites. They are a specific set tribe of Israel that was tasked with keeping the temple in order. They were the workforce for the priests, essentially. I like to think of it, and it's not the perfect comparison, but I think it helps. I would be considered a priest. Not that I'm the highest religious authority, but the idea is still the same that I have studied for this, I have the responsibility that God has given me to be a pastor is very similar to what a priest would be. The volunteers of our church, they are the Levites, because you're the ones that allow us to do our job. So, for the priest and the Levite to leave one of their own dying on the side of the road is, again, hugely impactful because it is, it is exactly countercultural to what they should have done. Now, those of you that have probably heard the Good Samaritan a hundred times, you may have heard this argument that I'm about to bring up. Well, Pastor Logan, the Levite and the priest weren't supposed to stop because that would make them unclean and therefore they couldn't do their job. I've, I, I mean, when I first read this and studied it in Bible college, I thought the same thing. So like I said, the Jewish tradition is cyclical, and it's, and it's, very, it's based on this deep-rooted tradition that you follow rules set by God, and if you follow those rules, you will inherit eternal life. Okay, but if you stray from those rules, you would do something to then cleanse yourself, to then go and live a more righteous life again. And one of those was not being around sick and dying people. Because it made you unclean. Both, I mean, yes, physically, but more spiritually and culturally. You, you were dirty. They didn't like you. Now, there's also the rule of mercy, which supersedes the cleansing rules. But we don't often talk about that. And that's why Jesus asks him, who had mercy on him. Because he's testing the lawyer back. He's testing that scribe again and saying, like, look, he had mercy on him. And that's why he asks the Samaritan, that's why he answers the Samaritan. So if you've heard that before, you're right. That that argument is partially true. It's just that they oftentimes I think people forget about the rule of mercy. And they forget, this is why we do our geography studies, even though I despise geography in high school. Um it says that the priest was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, which means he was leaving Jerusalem. He was finished with his temple duties. Same with the Levite. So they were no longer required 
to keep the cleansing rules. Because the next time they go to the temple, they'll be cleansed anyway. So truthfully, for them to not stop, it has nothing to do with them following the law or not following the law. I mean, they're justifying it in their heads by saying, we can't do that. But truthfully, they were just lazy and didn't want to. And now that's a bold assumption. I can't actually say that with real proof or anything like that. But I think we can take a pretty educated guess that that's what they're thinking. They probably just had the really long day at the temple. They see this person and they're like, ah, the next person will do it. Because it's a very busy road. But that's so backwards to me. How is it that the Samaritan is willing to do it, but our own isn't? See, here we have two amazing countercultural things happening, and what should be happening isn't, because we should be the ones, aka I'm putting us in the position of the priest and the Levite, we should be the ones going out and helping these people, but we're not, because we get so wrapped up in our own rules and our own ideas of what the world should look like that we actually forget to go out and practice it. And then we have, you know, the story of, like I said, the Samaritan who all the countercultural things, and he is the one to go over and help the man. It's that inconvenient love. For both of these highly religious leaders to leave a dying Jew on the road, absolutely crazy to me. Truthfully, I, like, I want to defend the priest and the Levite. I really do. Because, like I said, I can kind of see myself as being those type, that, that type of person back then. But I can't. I, I don't have a defense for that. To me, it just looks like lazy. And that's okay, right? We're human. We make mistakes. But we need to be showing that inconvenient love like the Samaritan did. See, that Samaritan didn't see that person as a Jew. He didn't see that man as opposition. He didn't see that man as his enemy. He didn't, he didn't think about the feud of Israelite versus Samaritan that went generations long where his ancestors had probably died fighting. He was able to put all of that aside to help somebody in need, to reach across the aisle and help somebody. I want to imagine a world where we do that. See, in 1943, height of World War II, and there was this, there, this uh, plane was making a bombing run. Okay? So this, 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 this allied plane getting ready to go and do its job. A German uh, squadron of fighter pilots was then dispatched to stop this bomber. This thing was called the Flying Fortress, is what they referred to as, a B-17. The thing was like the size of a bus and would fly around. This one in particular was called the Ye Old Pub, and it was flown by Lieutenant Charlie Brown. His plane gets destroyed, or at least severely damaged. 
the, the squadron of fighter pilots did their job. They damaged the plane, but they didn't quite finish it. So they fly away, probably low on fuel and ammunition. They're going to go restock and come back to finish the job. Command says, no, 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 we got one other plane in the air. We're going to send him to finish off the job. So a, pi a German pilot by the name of Franz Stiegler was dispatched by his commanding officer to destroy the enemy. Finish off ye old pub. Take out Lieutenant Charlie Brown. As Stiegler is flying closer and closer to this plane, all he sees is the horrific and hysterical state that the pilot's in, that this plane is left in. And one of the biggest things that he, he was managed to figure out about the situation was that the compass and the navigation system of the plane was completely destroyed. So any chance that this plane had at maybe getting home was now gone because this pilot has no idea where he's flying to. Turns out he was flying right into enemy-occupied airspace with probably giant anti-aircraft guns on the ground waiting to shoot this plane out of the sky. Franz Stiegler approaches the plane and actually manages to escort the yield pub back into Allied-controlled airspace, able to save Lieutenant Charlie Brown's life. He risked being court-martialed. And let's be real, he actually risked being killed for insubordination. Right? If you're helping the enemy, especially at the height of World War II, it's a big no-no. I did some more research on this story, and it actually turns out that these two met each other later on in life became, like, really good friends, right? We have two opposing sides who absolutely, unequivocally hate each other to the bone. But if they're willing to drop what they see us in, to what they've seen as the enemy, I think we can too. If the Samaritan man is willing to forget the generations-long feud I think we can too. See, we don't deserve the love that we got. Christ's love for us was not deserved. But he did it anyway. Showed mercy and compassion and love on the cross when he died for us. This ultimate example of inconvenient love. It was modeled and done for us. And we're called to do that same thing to others. So the next time, the next time you get in an argument with somebody about a, polit a political argument, or the next time you start fighting with your neighbor because he blows his glass clippings on your lawn, or he blows the snow the wrong way on your driveway, whatever, Somebody cuts you off in, in traffic. I don't know, but we, we, we immediately see these people as the enemy. We shouldn't. We're not called to. We're shown to love those people. That's inconvenient love. It's the idea of going out and doing something that stretches us, 
pushes us, that challenges us to love people when we don't want to, and even when we don't think they deserve it. That's mercy. That's inconvenient love. Inconvenient love is loving people like Christ loved us. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you for your amazing work in this service already, God. Thank you for your Holy Spirit coming and healing and just being present. God, thank you for Pastor Bryce and his boldness and willingness to listen to you and to respond to your teachings and to respond to what your Holy Spirit has to say. Holy Spirit, I just, I come and I pray that you just, you sow a seed in our hearts today, God, that we can just water and flourish to go out and to show people love when it's inconvenient for us. God, that we can model how Christ loved us to others. That we have mercy and we love people even when we don't think they deserve it. God, and I just, I pray for those here today who are struggling with this idea to love somebody who they think doesn't deserve it. God, whether it be a family member who is, who is arguing with them or somebody at work or a friend or a teammate, whatever. I just, God, I pray that you come and you reveal your love to them so that we can reveal it to others. God, that you empower us and inspire us to go out to reach those around us. God, and I pray for those who came in today with stresses, who might be worried about money, or a family member is sick, or anything, those things that weigh us down, those chains, those bondage that holds us from experiencing your love and joy. I just, I pray that those things be dropped at the feet of Jesus today, God. That all the stresses, anxieties, the fears, the addictions, everything, God, that you take them away so that when people love here, there's nothing holding them back from showing the love of Christ, from loving people inconveniently, from stepping across the aisle, to entering the no man's land, going into the enemy territory and saying, hey, I love you. We pray all these things in your mighty and powerful name, Jesus.